The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 54 To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a contemplation of David when the Ziphites went and said to Saul, Is David hiding with us? Save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. Okay, we got kind of a milestone sermon today. Exodus 40, verses 17 through 38. It's our very last passage in the book of Exodus. This is entitled, The Lord in Their Midst. Verse 17, And it came to pass in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was raised up. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put in its bars, and raised up its pillars. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and he lit the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil, and he burned sweet incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle, and he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water there for washing. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting and when they came near the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar and hung up the screen of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. 
Today is the last set of verses in the book of Exodus. This is our 105th sermon for the book as well. It's been an amazing adventure, and the perfection of God's Word has been seen in countless different ways during our trip through it. We have learned history. There have been innumerable moral lessons which have been presented to us. There have been prophetic pictures of things to come, and there has been an astonishing ray of symbolism of Christ and His Word revealed in every passage that we've looked at. These verses reveal the completion of an amazing journey which began when Moses ascended Sinai in Exodus chapter 25. It has been an extraordinary 39 sermons since he was first told that the Lord was going to build a sanctuary to dwell in, there in the midst of Israel. He immediately began to give details of what was to come, and as he did, he was revealing hidden pictures of the glory that those things only symbolized. Christ. Christ was being described in the minutest detail. His person, his word, his work, his grace, and his mercy, his judgment, and his purifying glory. And one picture which was being presented is now realized in his church. The tabernacle where the Lord would dwell was simply a picture of the church, the people of God, which is being built into a greater and more perfect temple for him to dwell. Paul tells us this in our text verse of the day, which comes from Ephesians chapter 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Moses, who has been a marvelous type of Christ on numerous occasions, will erect the tabernacle in today's passage, and the Lord will move into his dwelling. When he does, the refulgency of God will shine forth in such a dazzling display that it will be impossible to approach near. Now, imagine what it will be like when God's people are glorified, and Christ comes to dwell among us for all eternity. The glories which lie ahead for the people of God make all of the distasteful trials of this world seem like they never happened. There is a hope which lies ahead for the faithful in Christ, which will supersede anything that we can possibly imagine. Personally, I can't wait for the day, and may that day be soon. Mere hints of what lies ahead will close out the book of Exodus for us. What a joy this book has been, as the Lord has unfurled countless treasures concerning himself and his marvelous plan of redemption. We have this final passage to go, a passage which is a wonderful part of his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have four individual thoughts for you today. The first is setting up the tabernacle and the most holy place. It's verses 17 through 21. Verse 17, and it came to pass in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month that the tabernacle was raised up. As according to verse 2 of this chapter, the words are now fulfilled. It was on the day of the new year when the first year of freedom turned to the next according to the redemptive calendar which was given to Moses by the Lord that the tabernacle was then raised up. It is exactly 345 days after departing from Egypt and 300 days since arriving at Sinai that the instructions were carried out. It is now the year 2515 Anno Mundi, meaning in the year of the world. For the time spent on the actual work of the tabernacle, the 80 days that Moses was on the mountain need to be deducted. 
Also, the giving of the law itself, and any interval between these events need to be deducted as well. In all, the work was fully accomplished in about one half of one year. With it having been approved by Moses, it will now be assembled in one single day. Verse 18, so Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards, put in its bars, and raised up its pillars. There is a dispute among scholars as to whether the word fastened here is correct or not, according to the use of these sockets. Various translations say put in place, set down, laid, installed, etc. The word is natan. It's where our modern name Nathan comes from. It means to give or to put. The bases were extremely heavy, but some scholars think that they were still not heavy enough to support the weight without tipping over. Therefore, they speculate that these were actually wedge-shaped and that they were partially buried in the ground. Now, whether this is the case or not, the tabernacle once joined as a unit and secured with cords and pegs would be one sturdy structure. Verse 19, and he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses. This would have certainly been one of the most difficult parts of the entire operation. If you've ever worked with tents, you know this. But these people had been tent dwellers for countless generations, and they could take down and put up their tents in a most trouble-free manner. Even today, the Bedouins move their large tents, breaking them down and setting them up with very little trouble. And if you've ever been to a circus and you see them roll out tons of tent, they get them up right away. These verses here show, and even they highlight the great distinction between the two separate units. There is the tabernacle, and there is the tent over the tabernacle. One covers the other, and in almost all instances, the title Tent of Meeting is used rather than Tabernacle of Meeting. The tabernacle was raised, and then the tent, which comprised both the ram skins dyed red, and then the outer covering, which are skins of sea animals, are placed over the tabernacle. Verse 20, he took the testimony and put it in the ark, inserted the poles through the rings of the ark, and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. This verse should rightfully be translated, he had taken the testimony and put it in the ark. The two tablets of the Ten Commandments, meaning the testimony, were placed there when Moses came down from the mountain. This is recorded in Deuteronomy 10, verse 5. The only other explanation is that Deuteronomy 10 was referring to this time, and if so, then the Ten Commandments were left outside of the ark for quite some duration of time, and this is rather unlikely. Either way, though, the rest of the ark was probably not assembled until right now. It is at this time that the testimony would be covered with the mercy seat and the poles were placed on the ark. As a point for you, out of all 20 translations that I look at for each of these sermons, including the Hebrew, only the New King James Version says that he inserted the poles through the rings of the ark. The Hebrew never mentions the rings, and so their translation is more of an explanatory paraphrase. Unfortunately, they did not italicize those words, and so it must be considered a bad translation of this verse, even if it is a correct idea. As this is God's word, precisions should be made in matters like this. Verse 21, And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses. This would have been the last time that the Israelite people would have seen the ark for many, many hundreds of years. From this moment on, the ark was never to be seen by anyone except the high priest, and that only once a year. 
However, during the time of their movement of the tabernacle, during their wilderness wanderings, it would have also been seen by the priests who were designated to cover it before it was transported from place to place. This is recorded in Numbers 4, verse 5. Other than these exceptions, the ark was to forever remain behind the veil, showing the people that there was a fracture or a divide between them and the Lord. The veil with its cherubim woven into it was to remind them that man had been cast out of Eden and could not enter the Lord's presence except through a mediator. What a profound and sobering picture of the work of Christ, whose coming and whose ministry was as of yet unknown to them. What is surprising is that even to this day's, the Jews don't get it. They are in the process of making a new veil for the coming temple in Jerusalem. On that veil will be cherubim like those of old. They are willingly demonstrating that they have no access to God and to his paradise, which is prepared for those who come to him through Christ. Thank God for Jesus Christ who rent the veil through his work. Thank God for Jesus Christ who restores to us the intimate fellowship which was lost to man at the very first moments of his long and weary existence here on planet Earth. The most holy place where the Lord does dwell, the place where all of his goodness is known. We had lost access to that place for a long, long spell, but hints of how to return us there have been shown. There in the place where peace is to be found, where the Lord resides and from where shines his glory, a marvelous place where joy does abound, is revealed to us in the gospel story. Entering through the veil, the torn body of the Lord, and placing our sins at the foot of the cross of Calvary, we have full access. Yes, peace is restored. This is what God has done through Christ for you and for me. Our second thought today is setting up the holy place. It's verses 22 through 28. Verse 22, he put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. With the veil set, the attention is next turned to the holy place of the tabernacle. The first item to be placed there is the table of showbread. The tabernacle points to the west with its entrance at the east, and this then means that the north is on the right. There the table was to be placed. As a correction here, the Hebrew says, and he put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle. Two different words are used, tent and tabernacle. But the translators of the New King James Version erringly overlook this and call it the tabernacle both times. In another sad state, but one which is way too often repeated, one scholar incorrectly commented on this verse concerning the placement of this table, and from that it was repeated by other scholars that I read. The comment was that until this point there were no instructions given for where this table would be placed. Here's what the pulpit commentary states. They say no direction has been given upon... This point, but Moses probably knew the right position from the pattern which he had seen upon the mount. This is what happens when one person says something and then it becomes accepted without checking. In fact, the placement for this table was noted when it was first mentioned back in Exodus 26. It says, you shall set the table outside of the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. There it is. When reading commentaries, never allow your brain to squiggle until you first check to see if the commentary is correct. If such an obvious error is possible with such a simple thing as this, imagine how much more important it is to check on doctrinal matters, which can affect your entire walk with Jesus Christ and even the matter of your salvation. Verse 23, And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
This is the bread of the presence or the bread of the faces, as is literally translated in Exodus 25, verse 30. According to Leviticus 26, it was to be set in two rows, six loaves to a row. Because the instructions for this are given afterwards in Leviticus, it shows that the book of Leviticus is not necessarily a chronological record of what was instructed. Instead, it is a compilation of what the Lord had commanded, which was then placed in the order as divinely inspired by the Lord. Verse 24, he put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. The lampstand is the next item in the holy place within the tent of meeting. It will be on the left as one enters to minister. Its arrangement was so that it was to be over against the table so that the light would shine to the north and illuminate the table. Verse 25, and he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. In this verse is a Hebraism that is translated in one of two ways. The words are ve'ya'al hanerot. Some translators say, and he set up the lamps. Others say, and he lit the lamps. Only Young's literal translation gives a direct rendering of the Hebrew. He says, and he causeth the lamps to go up. It isn't that he set up the lamps. It is that he lit them, thus making the light go up before the Lord. The holy place was illuminated through this work of Moses. It should be noted here that it is Moses who is doing these duties. He certainly had help with setting up the tabernacle and the tent and each piece of furniture, but he is the one to oversee the entire process. Aaron is not mentioned as having done any of these things because he is not yet ordained to do them. Only Moses is set apart to be the one in charge of the duties at this point. This will end in just a few days when the rite of ordination is complete, but until then, it is his responsibility to ensure that each step is carried out. And as the process continues, we read again that he accomplishes the task as the Lord commanded. He is being a faithful steward of the tasks that he has been charged with. Verse 26, he put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting in front of the veil. This is the altar of incense, which is now called the gold altar. This is to distinguish it from the brazen altar, which will be outside of the tent. Its placement is just before the veil, which would be putting it right halfway between the table and the menorah. There, before the veil, the smoke and the smell of the incense would be the only thing to pass through the veil and into the most holy place each day. It signifies that the prayers of the people through the Lord's designated representative, would be received by God there in his dwelling place. Verse 27, and he burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. The incense would be lit and burned twice each day at the same times that the menorah was tended to. Again, this was a duty only for authorized priests. And so it once again says that as the Lord had commanded Moses. It is a note that despite the fact that Moses was not selected an ordained high priest, he was given the command to accomplish these tasks until Aaron and his sons were properly installed. This is going to be important as we go on later. It is also worthy of note, once again, that the incense is called sweet or fragrant. The reason why is this is so important is because not just any incense could be presented before the Lord. In just a few more chapters and in just a few days from this very moment that Moses is working, two sons of Aaron will present unauthorized incense before the Lord and they will be consumed by fire for their irreverence. As this incense pictures acceptable prayers to God, 
the profane incense pictures unacceptable prayers to God. For us to mix our prayers with those of unbelievers or of any other faith or religion acknowledges their prayers as acceptable before the Lord. It is a deed worthy of death. We are not to pray with people of other religions as if we are praying to the same God. It is a direct affront to him when we do this. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and man, and there can be no fellowship between light and darkness. Verse 28, he hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle. This hanging is the covering of the entranceway into the holy place. It is visible to the people from outside of the tent of meeting, and anyone who is curious could watch the ministering priest go through this entryway, but their peering eyes could see no further than this. The holy place where there is the bread of life, the holy place where the light of life shines so bright, the holy place where prayers are raised to end all strife, there in the holy place the Lord came to cure our helpless plight. His perfect life was ended so that we could live. His light was covered over so that we could shine. For us to his Father his prayers he did give, and to the world he has given his marvelous sign. Look to the cross and to our bread of life. Look to the cross for the light of the world. Pray through the one who has ended the strife and give glory to the Lord who has his banner unfurled. Our third thought today is setting up the courtyard and its furniture. It's verses 29 through 33. Verse 29, and he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. The altar of burnt offering is connected directly to the door of the tabernacle in this verse. There is no connecting preposition in the Hebrew. Without this altar, there could be no access. One cannot minister to the Lord until he first offers to the Lord. Thus, Moses has the altar placed in direct line with the entranceway, and then it next notes that he made his offering just as the Lord commanded. Verse 30, he set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water there for washing. Despite the altar of burnt offering being connected to the door, this laver is still placed between the altar and the tent of meeting. The general speculation is that it was placed just off to the south side so that the priests would have to not go around it. But this is unstated in the Bible. Its purpose has been described already, washing. But the Lord once again states it and further defines it. Verse 31, and Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. The tense of the verb here is frequentive. In other words, it indicates that the washing took place at any given time. At this time, Moses would be the one to wash. When Aaron and his sons were installed, Moses would no longer perform priestly functions and he would no longer wash. But Aaron and his sons would. The verse simply explains the placement and the use of the laver. Verse 32, whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting and when they came near the altar, they washed. The importance of the laver is seen in the exceptional amount of explanation given for it. So far, we have reviewed all of the furniture to be used in the sanctuary, and only this one piece has gotten so much detail concerning its use. If you don't remember the symbolism of the laver, or if you didn't see that sermon, you should go review. In short, it signifies our ongoing sanctification, which preeminently comes from knowing and adhering to the words of Scripture. If you wonder how the Lord feels about the time you spend in the Word, all you need to do is look at the amount of detail that he's giving us now as to the use of the labor. He wants you in it day and night. 
If you're not filling yourself with the word, you're filling yourself with something else, and it's probably something completely non-productive in regards to your relationship with the Lord. Verse 32 continues, as the Lord had commanded Moses. This is the last of eight times that this is said of Moses' adherence to the duties he was prescribed. If you add in his supervision of the work of the people from the previous chapter, it is a full 18 times that the obedience of Moses is highlighted just as the Lord commanded. With each step of the process, the Bible meticulously notes the adherence to what the Lord had previously spoken. It is an especially poignant note for us to consider because the word of the Lord to Moses is exactly the same word from the Lord which is recorded for us. Whether in part or in whole, when we receive the word of the Lord, our obedience to it and our adherence to it is being gauged. Moses was told, do this, and the Bible then records Moses did this as commanded. We are told, do this, and when we stand before the Lord, the record will either read, he did this, or he didn't do this. An eternity of rewards can be very easily lost in the purifying fire of the Lord's judgment simply because we failed to heed. Let's not let that happen to us. Verse 33, and he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar. The court around the tabernacle stretched out for 150 feet on the north and on the south, and it was about 75 feet across on the west and on the east. In all, then, it was approximately one half the size of a football field. It wasn't just a court, but actually an enclosure. The tabernacle would have sat inside of it. Now, just so you know, Flavius Josephus, the uh, historian of uh, Jewish antiquities, says that the tabernacle was placed in the middle of the court. But most photos or depictions, as you see here, have it centered and all the way to the back of the courtyard. From a pictorial aspect, what Josephus says makes more sense. And the, it, we'll get to that in about 5,000 more sermons, where the ark would then be directly in the middle of the tabernacle and the people around it, I don't want to give it away, but I'm going to give it away, they actually form a miles-wide cross. It's perfect if you look at it in the Bible, and right there in the middle would be the ark, the heart of God. But from a pictorial aspect, what Josephus makes most sense, the placement of the ark, the very heart of the entire edifice would be there in the center of the sanctuary. But we don't know that. Most depictions have it this way. Flavius Josephus says it was in the middle. We're not certain of that. But I want you to know that from a pictorial aspect, and how do I know that? It's because I'm going to tell you this now because we may never get to that passage. I read the Bible and read the Bible and read the Bible and what he does is he details how many people go everywhere. And as I'm reading it one time, I decide to do a study on it. And it says you've got 74,000 from Judah and this many from this and this many from this, and they will be east. And then this many will be to the west and this many will be to the north and this many will be to the south. So we know how many people are laid out. But when I got to the part about Leviticus, in uh, the Levites, I'm sorry, it said something odd. It said you were going to have this tribe of the Levites here and this tribe of the Levites here and this tribe of the Levites here. And yet, there are more people on this side than on this side, and yet there are less Levites here than on this side. And I said, now why would the Lord do that? Because they're supposed to minister to the people. But if you add up all of the numbers, it comes out precisely, precisely a picture of a cross in the wilderness. Miles in length, because all that are east are to be east. All that are west are to be west. Think of the tents. Think of the number of people and the animals and everything else. And right there in the heart is the tabernacle and right in the middle of the tabernacle would be the Ark of the Covenant, the Word of God. Imagine that. So anyway, now you don't need that brain squiggle when we do that sermon, but we will detail it someday if we get that far. 
I have a feeling that we may not be here that long, but we'll see. We'll hope that the Lord comes soon. Verse 33 continues, and hung up the screen of the court gate. This is the last detail mentioned in the entire sanctuary. It is the screen by which access into the court itself was obtained. As this is shown to clearly picture Christ, the way, the truth, and the life, it is fitting that it is the last item mentioned. It is a note that in order to get through all of the other objects and to the very throne of the Lord, one must come through Christ. There is no end around for the people of the world. It is either Jesus or one is left without access. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Verse 33 continues, so Moses finished the work. Bekal Moshe et ha melakha. The words are simple and without any fanfare. And finished Moses the work. He was given a task, and he saw it through to its completion. The sanctuary was now complete in every detail. As a note before we go on, the details of lighting the lamps, burning incense, burning offerings, and washing with the laver, and so on, all of these details were certainly done after this verse, this final verse here, but they were mentioned before to show that those functions were accomplished in accord with the use of the respective item. Further, Though the anointing of these items for their consecration is not mentioned until Leviticus chapter 8, it is more than probable that it was accomplished directly after the final setting up of the sanctuary and as the week-long ordination of Aaron began. It is I who consecrates Israel. It is by my glory that this is so. And it is I who can consecrate you as well. To you, my holiness, I will show. For those who call out from Eden's chains, I will respond and break them free. Nothing of the previous bondage now remains for those who have been released by me. I am the Lord who sanctifies his people. It is by my glory that this is so. So let them sing their praises from under the steeple. They are mine. Let the world know. Our fourth and final thought of the day, our fourth and final thought of the chapter, and our fourth and final thought of the book of Exodus is the cloud and the glory. It's verses 34 through 38. Verse 34. And the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The sign of the Lord's approval of all that has taken place and of his entry into his new residence is now given in a stunning display. The cloud which had led them from the Red Sea all the way to Mount Sinai, and which rested upon either Sinai or Moses' tent when he went there to meet with the Lord, now enveloped the tent of meeting. And from within the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord dazzlingly radiated out, filling the entire temple. The promise to dwell in the midst of Israel has now come to its realization. Regardless of the actual timing of the events concerning the anointing of the tabernacle and all of the furniture, and also the timing of Aaron's consecration, the temporary nature of the Levitical priesthood is made perfectly obvious by the placement of this final passage at the end of the book of Exodus, instead of within the book of Leviticus. In Exodus 29, the Lord said these words to Moses, This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. At that time, I explained that the words, the tabernacle, were inserted by the translators. All it says is, and I will sanctify by my glory. The question was then, what will the Lord sanctify by his glory? 
of 20 English translations, the options were the place, it, the tabernacle, that place, the tent, and the altar. Does anyone remember which one was correct? Nobody. Y'all slept during that sermon. The answer was none of those. Rather, the only entity mentioned in the verse was the children of Israel. And I substantiated this very well. I was very careful to show you that that is who is being sanctified. It's not the tabernacle, and it's not the altar. It is Israel who is sanctified by the presence of the Lord. The proof of this was that his glory filled the tent of meeting. The Lord had told them after their sin of the golden calf that he would not dwell in their midst. Through the mediation of Moses, the Lord agreed that he would dwell in their midst. Now with the sanctuary complete, the promise is realized. He has come to dwell in their midst and Israel as a people is sanctified by his glory. During their exile, this was the very promise made to Israel through Ezekiel. He told them at that time, there was a time coming when he would be with them and once again sanctify them by his glory. Here's what it says in Ezekiel 37. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God and they shall be my people. The nations will know that I, the Lord, sanctify Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. But that never happened after the exile, did it? No. There is no record of the presence of the Lord filling the second temple. The time is yet future to them even now. And it is connected not to this covenant mediated by Aaron. Instead, it is connected to the covenant which is mediated by the Messiah to come, as was promised through Jeremiah the prophet. This marvelous truth is hinted at now in the placement of this passage in Exodus, not in Leviticus. Even before the consecration of Aaron and his sons, while still under the mediation of Moses, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. The law administered by Moses, even after his death, was only a temporary stepping stone until the time of it being superseded by what it only pointed to, the better and more perfect covenant found in Christ Jesus. Verse 35, And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. What this seems to imply is that Moses, in fact, attempted to enter the tent of meeting, just as he had done when he met the Lord in the previous tent of meeting outside the camp. However, the brilliant splendor of Jehovah was so radiant and so marvelous that he couldn't. It was beyond his ability to do so. What a sign to all of the people of the marvelous workings of the Lord on their behalf. Verses 34 and 35 are repeated in what occurred at the building of Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. In 1 Kings chapter 8, we're going to read this, if we ever get there. And it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. This is the first temple which is built. So that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. But notice the main difference between the two. In Exodus, it says that Moses was not able to enter. In 1 Kings, it says that the priests could not continue ministering. It is not the ministration of the priests that brings the Lord's presence near, nor is it the law of Moses, which is still not complete. We've got many, many more laws of the law of Moses coming. Rather, the glory of the Lord coming among the people to sanctify them precedes the Aaronic priesthood, and it also precedes the full giving of the law of Moses. Therefore, neither of these things can be considered necessary for the coming of the Lord to dwell among his people. Rather, the things which have been erected 
are what brought it to pass. And these things are merely types and shadows, as we have all seen, of what? Of Jesus. Every single detail is pointed to Jesus. If the glory of the Lord fills a tabernacle, even before the ordination of the priests and the giving of the full law, guess what? As Christ is the fulfillment of all of them, then it is the Lord Jesus in whom the glory of the Lord dwells in, in its full and resplendent glory. If we would just pay heed to the details, even of seemingly obscure events in the Lord's word, we would know where to put our trust, our hope, and our attentive eyes. Verse 36, whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all of their journeys. At some point, the magnificent glory which filled the entire tabernacle retreated into the most holy place and was to be found only there above the mercy seat and between the cherubim, as was promised to Moses in Exodus chapter 25. However, the cloud of glory remained above the tabernacle. It no longer moved from Sinai to tent and back to Sinai. Instead, it remained there above the tabernacle at all times until it was time to move. Only in this instance would the cloud move. And when it did, the people were expected to break camp and to follow. Verse 37. Excuse me. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day that it was taking up. It's exciting, isn't it? We're on the second to the last verse of the book of Exodus. I'm all giddy right now. <laughs> this verse is more fully explained in Numbers chapter 9. The people remained where they were and only moved when directed. Here's what it says in chapter 9 of Numbers. So it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, then they would journey, whether by day or by night. Whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month, or a year that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. It was solely by the direction of the Lord that the people moved. His plan was being executed, and his timing would prevail in having all things turn out as he had determined from the very beginning. Verse 38, our final verse of the sermon, our final verse of the chapter, and our final verse of the book of Exodus. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The cloud of glory had two distinct aspects. One was a covering cloud during the day. The other was the appearance of fire by night. This is not to be taken allegorically, but rather it is exactly what the people saw, and thus it was always visible to them. With the presence of the cloud above the tabernacle and in full sight of all of the people, they would never again have to ask the question, is the Lord among us or not? It would be evident to all that he was. It adds a touch of security to the obedient heart. But Israel is not known for its obedience, and therefore it also adds a note of dread, and that of assured judgment lies ahead for them. We don't even need to turn the pages to guess this. The Lord has said as much concerning the stiff-necked demeanor of the people, and yet, because of the faithful mediation of Moses, they have received the granting of their desires. They are now truly and inextricably the people of God, with all of the associated positives and negatives that this includes. The positives will stem from their faithfulness to him, and the negatives will stem from their rebellion against him. The Lord is unchanging, and this the people will find out. The chapter in the book close out with this final verse. The people became enslaved to Pharaoh at the beginning of the book, and they now have become servants of the Lord at its ending. 
Whereas the book of Genesis spanned well over 2,000 years of human history, Exodus spanned less than 100. After this, the next three books combined will span less than 40. The Lord chose his line of people. They had come to the point of their redemption, and now they will come to be refined as his people in order to enter the land of promise. Unfortunately, the refinement of a people is not congenital. Each generation must heed the lessons of the past, or they too will fall under the expected punishments of the Lord. Israel failed to teach their children, and they were twice exiled. By God's mighty hand alone, they have been returned once again to the land of promise. However, this time, instead of being refined in advance of their arrival, they will be refined only afterwards. It will be a terrifying lesson as their numbers are whittled down through the process. But there will be an end to that refinement, and a time of great, great glory lies ahead for them yet again. The cloud and the fire is promised once again to the people of God who dwell in Jerusalem of the future. Isaiah tells us of the marvel that the people will behold. This is from Isaiah chapter 4. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem would be called holy. Everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Even those words right there ought to be a little bit scary, huh? It's implying that there will be a lot that will not make it through. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering. And there will be a tabernacle for shade in the daytime from its heat for a place of refuge and for a shelter from storm and rain. Again, this passage from Isaiah is not to be allegorized. It is to be taken as a literal manifestation signifying the presence of the Lord over Jerusalem during the millennial period. It will be the time which occurs only after he has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. That day cannot be far off. The time of Israel's exile is ended. The time of falling away by the church has surely come close to reaching its climax, and the just punishment upon the nations of the world is close at hand. The Lord led Israel by cloud, and he leads his church by the written word. We fail to pay heed to this book at our own peril. In his magnificent superior word, there is a promise of great and marvelous things which lie ahead for the redeemed of the Lord. Let us hold fast to these promises and let us not lose heart as we await the sure coming of them. The Lord of glory is there and he is willing to accept all who come to him by faith. Let us not fail to heed the call when it is made and let us not fail to seek him while he may be found. Our closing verse today comes from Revelation chapter 21. But I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of the Lord illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Next week is Jonah 1. It's verses 1 through 3. With this new series, you will never be bored. It's entitled, From the Presence of the Lord.
and that'll be our first Jonah sermon. And I'll tell you this, for the last time ever, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Our poem today is called The Lord in Their Midst. And it came to pass in the first month of the second year on the first day of the month that the tabernacle was raised up to this command, Moses did it here. So Moses raised up the tabernacle, fastened its sockets, set up its boards too, put in its bars and raised up its pillars as he was instructed, so he did do. And he spread out the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent on top of it as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did tackle. He took the testimony and put it in the ark, inserted the poles through the ark's rings and put the mercy seat on top of the ark. He followed through with each of these things. Then he brought the ark into the tabernacle, hung up the veil of the covering, and partitioned off the ark of the testimony, as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did this thing. He put the table in the tabernacle of meeting, on the north side of the tabernacle, as the Lord did tell, outside the veil, its place of seating, and he set the bread upon it as well. It was there before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses, according to his word. He put the lampstand in the tabernacle of meeting, this job he did tackle, across from the table on the south side of the tabernacle. And he lit the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses, according to his word. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle of meeting, in front of the veil, this, the place of its seating. And he burned sweet incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses, as the Lord did submit. He hung up the screen at the door of the tabernacle, and then he continued to do more. And he put the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses the task he was completing. He set the laver between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar and put water there for washing in attention to this duty. He did not falter. And Moses, Aaron, and his sons would wash their hands and their feet with water from it. These people only, they the only ones. Whenever they went into the tabernacle of meeting, and when they came near the altar too, they washed, as the Lord had commanded Moses to do. And he raised up the court all around the tabernacle and the altar, this duty he did not shirk, and hung up the screen at the court gate, so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, surely this was a marvelous sight, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, the tabernacle was completed just right. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, even if he willed, because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord, the tabernacle, filled. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle moving forward, the children of Israel would go in all their journeys onward. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. They waited for it to move. They waited obediently. For the cloud of the Lord, this marvelous sight, was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night. In all of the house of Israel's sight, throughout all their journeys, it guided them as they went on their way. Lord God, thank you for this wonderful book, Exodus. What a marvel to have studied it. Into every possible detail we took a look, and to you, our thanks and praise, we now submit. Hallelujah to Christ our Lord. Hallelujah for Exodus, a marvelous part of your superior word. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the honor of having 
allowed us to see the marvels which were hidden in this book. Some of them which have never been seen before, right there in front of our noses, and yet you waited until this time to bring them out. And thank you that we have a chance to fellowship with the people here and the people online, and even the people that attend later on by YouTube, to fellowship with them and to study your word and to cherish it and to hide it away in our hearts. Should there come a time where the Bible is taken away from all people, we'll still have it hidden there. We'll have it right there because we are faithful to study it. Thank you for each person that is willing to do this. How good you are to us, O oh God. We pray for uh, each person here that has an ache or a pain or an ill or a woe, and also the people online and all of the people that have emailed over the past week, that you would be attentive to their needs, help them through them, be with them, guide them, and strengthen them. And Once again, thank you for this marvelous book, Exodus. What, what a journey it's been. And we anticipate wonderful things from the book of Jonah. And may that day that you come be soon and sweep us away from here. How good that will be. But until then, we'll just keep our noses in this word. And we love you and we praise you and we exalt you in Jesus' name. Amen. And that's something for you all to walk past and look at. Because I know some of you don't stay for, uh, some of you don't stay for treats afterward. Shame on you. But... <laughs> As you go by, I've told you all about my friend Doug, who uh, is in Ireland, and he does a, uh, a picture for us every sermon. And there's one that the first time I saw it, I cried. <laughs> it's the most beautiful, beautiful painting I think I've ever seen. And it's my favorite po photo from the book of Exodus, and so... It's kind of a woeful cake, but at the same time, it's pretty wonderful. Ye mm -hmm. shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any way, any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. Exodus 22. 22 through 24. He painted this for us on 30 January of 2016. I hope that you'll take a look at it, even if you don't come in back to have a piece of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's just beautiful. I'm all messed up now. <laughs> Jim has seen it. He printed it off for me on his computer because I'm so incompetent that I, I printed it and it came out all wrong. So <sighs> we get the instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. And there Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And he would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam amotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam, Borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at her face. Look yes. at the expression. Beautiful. It's beautiful. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Real. It's beautiful. If you would, maybe, do you have your camera? I want to get a picture of this. I do. Okay, before we cut it or anything, so that I can post that for the people to see. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at her face, it's beautiful. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wonderful. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at her face. The afflicted widow. Oh, the emotion is everywhere. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's just outstanding. Oh, boy. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I'd like to say a special prayer for Doug, who does this artwork, who suffers with several physical afflictions. And some Saturdays, you know I get an email, Charlie, I can't do one this week. And yet you've provided him strength every single week to do it. And I thank you for that perseverance on his part and on your grace to heal him. We thank you for this wonderful book of Exodus and all the treasures that were so beautifully revealed, showing us your dear son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. How wonderful it is. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you in his name. Amen. Amen.